be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Cricket on the Hearth, Chapter 3, Chirp the Third, Part 2. In the last part, after a restless night of surreal visions, John Peary Bingle has discussed with Tackleton his regrets in marrying Dot. In this part, Bertha discovers the truth of her father's deceptions. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. The toy merchant gazed at him without winking. Even the half-shut eye was open now. Heaven bless her, said the carrier, for the cheerful constancy with which she tried to keep the knowledge of this from me. And heaven help me, that, in my slow mind, I have not found it out before. Poor child. Poor Dot. I not to find it out, who have seen her eyes fill with tears when such a marriage as ours own was spoken of. I, who have seen the secret trembling on her lips a hundred times, and never suspected it till last night. Poor girl, that I could ever hope she would be fond of me, that I could ever believe that she was. She made a show of it, said Tackleton. She made such a show of it, that to tell you the truth, It was the origin of my misgivings. And here he asserted the superiority of May Fielding, who certainly made no sort of show of being fond of him. She has tried, said the poor carrier, with greater emotion 
than he had exhibited yet. I only now begin to know how hard she has tried to be my dutiful and zealous wife. How good she has been. How much she has done. How brave and strong a heart she has. Let the happiness I have known under this roof bear witness. It will be some help and comfort to me when I am here alone. Here alone, said Tackleton. Oh, then you mean to take some notice of this? I mean, returned the carrier, to do her the greatest kindness and make her the best reparation in my power. I can release her from the daily pain of an unequal marriage and the struggle to conceal it. She shall be as free as I can render her. Make her reparation, exclaimed Tackleton, twisting and turning his great ears with his hands. There must be something wrong here. You didn't say that, of course. The carrier set his grip upon the collar of the toy merchant and shook him like a reed. Listen to me, he said, and take care that you hear me right. Listen to me. Do I speak plainly? Very plainly indeed, answered Tackleton. As if I meant it. Very much as if you meant it. I sat upon that hearth last night, all night, exclaimed the carrier. On the spot where she has often sat beside me, with her sweet face looking into mine. I called up her whole life. Day by day, I had her dear self in its every passage in review before me. And upon my soul she is innocent, if there is one to judge the innocent and guilty. Staunch cricket on the hearth, loyal household fairies. Passion and distrust have left me, said the carrier, and nothing but my grief remains. In an unhappy moment, some old lover, better suited to her tastes and years than I, forsaken, perhaps, for me, against her will, returned. In an unhappy moment, taken by surprise, and wanting time to think of what she did, she made herself a party to his treachery by concealing it. Last night she saw him, 
in the interview we witnessed. It was wrong, but otherwise than this, she is innocent if there is truth on earth. If that is your opinion, Tackleton began. So let her go, pursued the carrier. Go with my blessing for the many happy hours she has given me, and my forgiveness for any pang she has caused me. Let her go, and have the peace of mind I wish her. She'll never hate me. She'll learn to like me better when I'm not a drag upon her, and she wears the chain I have riveted more lightly. This is the day on which I took her, with so little thought for her enjoyment, from her home. Today she shall return to it, and I will trouble her no more. Her father and mother will be here today. We had made a little plan for keeping it together, and they shall take her home. I can trust her, there or anywhere. She leaves me without blame, and she will live so I am sure. If I should die, I may perhaps while she is still young. I have lost some courage in a few hours. She'll find that I remembered her and loved her to the last. This is the end of what you showed me. Now it's over. Oh no, John, not over. Do not say it's over yet. Not quite yet. I have heard your noble words. I could not steal away, pretending to be ignorant of what has affected me with such deep gratitude. Do not say it's over till the clock has struck again. She had entered shortly after Tackleton and had remained there. She never looked at Tackleton, but fixed her eyes upon her husband. But she kept away from him, setting as wide a space as possible between them. And though she spoke with most impassioned earnestness, she went no nearer to him even then. How different in this from her old self. No hand can make the clock which will strike again for me, the hours that are gone, replied the carrier with a faint smile. But let it be so, if you will, my dear. It will strike soon. It's of little matter what we say. I'd try to please you in a harder case than that. Well, muttered Tackleton, I must be off, or when the clock strikes again, it'll be necessary for me to be upon my way to church. Good morning, John Peerybingle.
I'm sorry to be deprived of the pleasure of your company. Sorry for the loss, and the occasion of it too. I have spoken plainly, said the carrier, accompanying him to the door. All quite. And you'll remember what I've said. Why, if you compel me to make the observation, said Tackleton, previously taking the precaution of getting into his chassis. I must say that it was so very unexpected that I'm far from being likely to forget it. The better for both of us, returned the carrier. Goodbye. I give you joy. I wish I could give it to you, said Tackleton. As I can't, thank you. Between ourselves, as I told you before, eh? I don't much think I shall have the less joy in my married life, because May hasn't been too officious about me and too demonstrative. Goodbye. Take care of yourself. The carrier stood looking after him until he was smaller in the distance than his horse's flowers and favours near at hand, and then, with a deep sigh, went strolling like a restless, broken man among some neighbouring elms, unwilling to return until the clock was on the eve of striking. His little wife, being left alone, sobbed piteously, but often dried her eyes and checked herself to say how good he was, how excellent he was, and once or twice she laughed so heartily, triumphantly, and coherently, still crying all the time, that Tilly was quite horrified. Oh, if you please, don't, said Tilly. It's enough to dead and bury the baby, so it is, if you please. Will you bring him sometimes? To see his father, Tilly, inquired her mistress, drying her eyes. When I can't live here and have gone to my old home. Oh, if you please don't, cried Tilly, throwing back her head and bursting out into a howl. She looked at the moment uncommonly like Boxer. Oh, if you please don't. Oh, what has everybody gone and been and done with everybody, making everybody else so wretched? The soft-hearted slow boy trailed off at this juncture into such a deplorable howl, the more tremendous from its long suppression, 
that she must infallibly have awakened the baby and frightened him into something serious, probably convulsions, if her eyes had not encountered Caleb Plumer leading in his daughter. This spectacle restoring her to a sense of the properties, she stood for some few moments silent, with her mouth wide open, and then, posting off to the bed on which the baby lay asleep, danced in a weird St. Vitus manner on the floor, and at the same time rummaged with her face and head among the bedclothes, apparently deriving much relief from those extraordinary operations. Mary, said Bertha, not at the marriage. I told her you would not be there, Mum, whispered Caleb. I heard as much last night, bless you, said the little man, taking her tenderly by both hands. I don't care for what they say. I don't believe them. There ain't much of me, but that little should be torn to pieces sooner than I'd trust a word against you. He put his arms about her and hugged her, as a child might have hugged one of his own dolls. Bertha couldn't stay at home this morning, said Caleb. She was afraid, I know, to hear the bells ring, and couldn't trust herself to be so near them on their wedding day. So we started in good time and came here. I've been thinking of what I've done, said Caleb, after a moment's pause. I've been blaming myself till I hardly knew what to do, or where to turn, for the distress of mind I have caused her, and I've come to the conclusion that I'd better, if you'll stay with me, Mum. The while, tell her the truth. You'll stay with me the while, he inquired, trembling from head to foot. I don't know what effect it may have upon her. I don't know what she'll think of me. I don't know that she'll ever care for her poor father afterwards. But it's best for her that she should be undeceived, and I must bear the consequences as I deserve. Mary, said Bertha, where is your hand? Ah, here it is, here it is, pressing it to her lips with a smile and drawing it through her arm. I heard them speaking softly among themselves last night of some blame against you. They are wrong. The carrier's wife was silent. Caleb answered for her. 
They were wrong, he said. I knew it, cried Bertha proudly. I told them so. I scorned to hear a word. Blame her with justice. She pressed the hand between her own and the soft cheek against her face. No, I am not so blind as that. Her father went on one side of her, while Dot remained upon the other, holding her hand. I know all, said Bertha, better than you think, but none so well as her. Not even you, father. There is nothing half so real and so true about me as she is. If I could be restored to sight this instant, and not a word was spoken, I could choose her from a crowd. My sister. Bertha, dear, said Caleb. I have something on my mind I want to tell you, while we three are alone. Hear me kindly. I have a confession to make to you, my darling. A confession, father? I have wandered from the truth and lost myself, my child, said Caleb, with a pitiable expression in his bewildered face. I have wandered from the truth, intending to be kind to you and have been cruel. She turned her wonder-stricken face towards him, and repeated, Cruel. He accuses himself too strongly, Bertha, said Dot. You'll say so presently. You'll be the first to tell him so. He, cruel to me, cried Bertha, with a smile of incredulity. Not meaning it, my child, said Caleb, but I have been, though I never suspected it till yesterday. My dear blind daughter, hear me and forgive me. The world you live in, heart of mine, doesn't exist as I have represented it. The eyes you have trusted in have been false to you. She turned her wonder-stricken face toward him, but drew back and clung closer to her friend. Your road in life was rough, my poor one, said Caleb, and I meant to smooth it for you. I have altered objects, changed the character of people, invented many things that never have been to make you happier. I have had concealments from you, 
put deceptions on you. God forgive me, and surrounded you with fancies. But living people are not fancies, she said hurriedly, and turning very pale, and still retiring from him. You can't change them. I have done so, Bertha, pleaded Caleb. There is one person that you know, my dove. Oh, father, what do you say I know? She answered in a term of keen reproach. What and whom do I know? I who have no leader, I so miserably blind. In the anguish of her heart, she stretched out her hands as if she were groping her way, then spread them in a manner most forlorn and sad upon her face. The marriage that takes place today, said Caleb, is with a stern, sordid, grinding man. A hard master to you and me, my dear, for many years. Ugly in his looks and in his nature. Cold and callous always. Unlike what I have painted him to you in everything, my child, in everything. Oh, why? cried the blind girl, tortured as it seemed, almost beyond endurance. Why did you ever do this? Why did you ever fill my heart so full? and then come in like death and tear away the objects of my love. Oh, heaven, how blind I am, how helpless and alone. Her afflicted father hung his head and offered no reply but in his penitence and sorrow. She had been but a short time in this passion of regret, when the cricket on the hearth, unheard by all but her, began to chirp. Not merrily, but in a low, faint, sorrowing way. It was so mournful that her tears began to flow and when the presence which had been beside the carrier all night appeared behind her, pointing to her father, they fell down like rain. She heard the cricket voice more plainly soon, and was conscious, through her blindness, of the presence hovering about her father. Mary, said the blind girl, 
tell me what my home is, what it truly is. It is a poor place, Bertha, very poor and bare indeed. The house will scarcely keep out wind and rain another winter. It is as roughly shielded from the weather, Bertha, Dot continued in a low, clear voice, as your poor father in his sackcloth coat. The blind girl, greatly agitated, rose and led the carrier's little wife aside. That came almost at my wish, and was so dearly welcome to me, she said, trembling. Where did they come from? Did you send them? No. Who then? Dot saw she knew already and was silent. The blind girl spread her hands before her face, but in quite another manner now. Dear Mary, a moment, one moment, more this way, speak softly to me. You are true, I know. You'd not deceive me now, would you? No, Bertha, indeed. No, I'm sure you would not. You have too much pity for me. Mary, look across the room to where we were just now, to where my father is, my father, so compassionate and loving to me, and tell me what you see. I see, said Dot, who understood her well. An old man, sitting in a chair, and leaning sorrowfully on the back, with his face resting on his hand, as if his child should comfort him, Bertha. Yes, yes, she will. Go on. He is an old man, worn with care and work. He is a spare, dejected, thoughtful, grey-haired man. I see him now, despondent and bowed down, and striving against nothing. But Bertha, I have seen him many times before and striving hard in many ways for one great sacred object. And I honour his grey head, and bless him. The blind girl broke away from her, and throwing herself upon her knees before him, took the grey head to her breast. It is my sight restored. It is my sight, she cried. 
I have been blind, and now my eyes are open. I never knew him. To think I might have died, and never truly seen the father who has been so loving to me. There were no words for Caleb's emotion. There is not a gallant figure on this earth, exclaimed the blind girl, holding him in her embrace, that I would love so dearly and would cherish so devoutly as this. The greyer and more worn, the dearer father. Never let them say I am blind again. There's not a furrow in his face, not a hair upon his head, that shall be forgotten in my prayers and thanks to heaven. Caleb managed to articulate. My Bertha. And in my blindness, I believed him, said the girl, caressing him with tears of exquisite affection. To be so different, and having him beside me, day by day, so mindful of me, always, never dreaming of this. The fresh, smart father in the blue coat, Bertha, said poor Caleb. He's gone. Nothing is gone, she answered. Dearest father, no. Everything is here, in you. The father that I loved so well. The father that I never loved enough and never knew. The benefactor whom I first began to reverence and love because he had such sympathy for me. All are here in you. Nothing is dead to me. The soul of all that was most dear to me is here, here with the warm face and the grey head. And I am not blind, father, not any longer. Dot's whole attention had been concentrated during this discourse upon the father and daughter, but looking now towards the little haymaker in the Moorish meadow, she saw that the clock was within a few minutes of striking and fell immediately into a nervous and excited state. Father, said Bertha, hesitating. Mary. Yes, my dear, returned Caleb. Here she is. There is no change in her. You never told me anything of her 
that was not true. I should have done it, my dear, I am afraid, returned Caleb. If I could have made her better than she was. But I must have changed her for the worse, if I had changed her at all. Nothing could improve her Bertha. Confident as the blind girl had been when she asked the question, her delight and pride in the reply, and her renewed embrace of Dot, were charming to behold. More changes than you think for may happen though, my dear, said Dot. Changes for the better, I mean. Changes for great joy to some of us. You mustn't let them startle you too much. If any such should ever happen and affect you. Are those wheels upon the road? You've a quick ear, Bertha. Are they wheels? Yes, coming very fast. I, I know you have a quick ear, said Dot, placing her hand upon her heart, and evidently talking on as fast as she could to hide its palpitating state. Because I have noticed it often, and because you were so quick to find out that strange step last night. Though why you should have said, as I very well recollect did say, whose step is that? And why you should have taken any greater observation of it than of any other step, I don't know. Though as I said just now, there are great changes in the world, great changes. And we can't do better than prepare ourselves to be surprised at hardly anything. Caleb wondered what this meant, perceiving that she spoke to him no less than to his daughter. He saw her with astonishment, so fluttered and distressed that she could scarcely breathe and holding to a chair to save herself from falling. They are wheels indeed, she panted. Coming nearer, nearer, very close. And now you hear them stopping at the garden gate. And now you hear a step outside the door. The same step, Bertha, is it not? And now... She uttered a wild cry of uncontrollable delight, and running up to Caleb, put her hands upon his eyes, as a young man rushed into the room, and flinging away his hat into the air, 
came sweeping down upon them. Is it over? cried Dot. Yes. Happily over. Yes. Do you recollect the voice, dear Caleb? Did you ever hear the like of it before? cried Dot. If my boy in the golden South Americas was alive, said Caleb, trembling. He is alive, shrieked Dot, removing her hands from his eyes and clapping them in ecstasy. Look at him. See where he stands before you, healthy and strong. Your own dear son. Your own dear, living, loving brother, Bertha. All honours to the little creature for her transports. All honour to her tears and laughter when the three were locked in one another's arms. All honours to the heartiness with which she met the sunburnt sailor fellow with his dark streaming hair halfway and never turned her rosy little mouth aside but suffered him to kiss it freely and to press her to his bounding heart. And honour to the cuckoo too. Why not? For bursting out of the trap door in the Moorish palace like a housebreaker, and hiccoughing twelve times on the assembled company, as if he had got drunk for joy. The carrier, entering, started back, and well he might, to find himself in such good company.